You are listening to audio from Faith Church. If you are in the Seminole, St. Pete area, we would love for you to join us on a Sunday. To learn more, visit us at faithrs.org. Amen. If you have your copy of God's Word or your Bible app, will you take that and go with me to the book of Acts? We're going to be in Acts chapter 8 together this morning, Acts chapter 8. If you don't have a Bible, we'd love to give you one. There are stacks of Bibles on the tables in the back of the room. You can take one now. You can take one on your way out today. That's our gift to you. Uh, Just start reading that Bible and see what happens in your life. If you are willing and able, will you stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word? We stand because we truly believe this is the Word of God. This is God speaking to our congregation here and now. So listen carefully to these words from Acts chapter 8. Uh-oh, gentlemen in the loft, I'm going to need a little assistance from you because we, uh, we have no Acts 8 on the screen here. I assume you have Acts 8 in front of you. Acts 8 hopefully will soon be in front of all of us. <laughs> oh, that's not a good sign. We're going, we're going backwards. Here we go. All right, let's see if I have control. I do have control now. Thank you, gentlemen in the loft. Well done. Let's give them a hand up there. Well done in the loft. All right, Acts chapter 8, without further ado. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning seated in his chariot. And he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the Spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran, ran to meet him, and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you are reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Well, if you're new to Faith Church, we are in this series that we have titled Faithful Presence, and this really is a series on evangelism. For six weeks now, we've been uh, looking at how, what is the gospel and how do we share it. And last week, we, we really started getting into the very practical stuff, and last week we asked the question, what is the best way to share the gospel with the people that God has placed in our lives today? What's the best way? Now, the question itself assumes that there are multiple ways to share the gospel, even multiple good ways to share the gospel. But last week, I argued that the best way involves four things. For our evangelistic efforts to be most effective, we need four things. And those four things are theological integrity, meaning a healthy understanding of evangelism, a healthy theology of evangelism, God's role and our role in this task. That's the first thing we need. Second, biblical literacy. We must have a knowledge of the Bible and especially the gospel, the very message we seek to share. But then third, we need cultural sensitivity. We must not only understand the gospel, we must understand the people that are right in front of us, the people we hope to share the gospel with. We need an awareness of our culture and awareness of the cultural narratives that are forming people here and now. Cultural sensitivity. And then finally, we need relational equity. We need the patience and the priorities that will allow us to develop relationships with unbelievers. 
Now, that's what we talked about last week. And you hear all that, maybe you're new today and you hear all that and you think, gosh, that sounds like a lot. Is that really necessary? I mean, do I really need all four of these things? Can't I just go to my unbelieving neighbor and say, Jesus loves us, this I know, for the Bible tells us so? You know, isn't that enough? And if you were here last week, you'll remember that I said, actually, no, you can't do that. I mean, you can, but you shouldn't. I don't recommend it. And maybe I offended some of you by saying I don't recommend it, but here's why. We must understand the times have changed. We live in a secular age. We cannot assume that our unbelieving neighbors care anything about Jesus. We can't assume that. You might recall this point from last week. For much of the church's missional history, Christians could assume that unbelievers would be present at our events, prepared with a basic knowledge of sin and their need for salvation, and positive about the church. So the church could simply preach its biblical content. But increasingly, increasingly, this is not the case. So I argued last week that we need more than preaching. Not less than preaching, more than preaching. We need new methods. And that's kind of where we're going to pick up today. When I say new methods, though, I should clarify, I mean new to us. New to us. Really, what we need to do is recover the methods that were used in the earliest Christian community. So really, I'm not arguing for originality here. I'm arguing for fidelity, faithfulness to what we see in the Scriptures. I think we should develop and use the methods that the very first Christians used. If you've hung with us for this whole series, you've heard me several times reference Michael Green, his life and his works. Well-known British scholar, he's passed away now, was at Oxford for a number of years, renowned for his work in the field of evangelism and apologetics. In the very first week of this series, we leaned on Michael Green's book, Evangelism in the Local Church. But there's a second book, probably even the better known of the two, called Evangelism in the Early Church. Evangelism in the Early Church. And in this work, Green shows us that the earliest Christians had three or four main evangelistic methods. This is how they took the gospel to the world way back in the first century. Here are the main three that Green talks about. The first one he just calls public proclamation. This is preaching and teaching. It's what we looked at last week as we went through the book of Acts and looked at Paul's different sermons and the audiences that he preaches to. Public proclamation was the first part, but there were two other methods. There's what Green calls household evangelism. You must remember that for the first 150 plus years in church history, there were no church buildings. There was no church campus. So the early Christians met in homes. They did a number of things in their homes to help them share the truth of the gospel. They even decorated their homes with mosaics on the outside and little things that were just hints that maybe a, an unbeliever would be passing by and ask, what, what's with that on the outside of your house? Subtle enough to invite some questions that they could then lead into spiritual conversations. They met in their homes to sing and to eat and to teach and to pray and they invited others to come and join them. Household evangelism was key in the early church. And then third, personal encounters. Like the story I just read for us in Acts chapter 8, where Philip, a Jewish man, he goes and he has a one-on-one -on -one conversation with this Ethiopian eunuch, 
a black-skinned, sexually altered man. They could not have been more different. And yet as Philip shares the gospel, and as the Ethiopian believes, they become brothers in Christ. These personal encounters were key in the early church. Now, here's the eye-opening conclusion from Michael Green's book, Evangelism in the Early Church. Here's what I want you to see. As important as pastors and missionaries were, the key players in the expansion of earliest Christianity were not those who made it a profession or a major part of their occupation, but men and women with secular careers who spoke of their faith to those they met in everyday life. Men and women with secular careers who spoke of their faith to those they met in everyday life. Listen, that's you. That's you. That's the public school teacher and the police officer, the software engineer and the scientist. You, people like you, were the key players in the expansion of earliest Christianity you can be a key player in the expansion of Christianity today. Yes, but how? Where do we begin? Well, I'm glad you're here. That's the question we're asking today and next Sunday as we wrap up this series. How do we begin to share the gospel where we live, where we work, and where we play? How do we begin? We're going to think in terms of four major categories. This is too much to cover in one week, so this is going to be part one. Next week will be part two. Today we're going to look just at these first two. How do we begin sharing the gospel? We begin by connecting or meeting lost people or meeting more of them and by caring or deepening those relationships. Next week we'll talk about chatting, initiating spiritual conversations, how to do so, and then what I'll call chaplaining or remaining their bridge to the sacred. All right, so two parts today, connecting and caring. Let's start with connecting or meeting lost people. No-brainer, right? If we are going to share the gospel with lost people, we must know or get to know some lost people. We must establish relationships with them. So how do we do so? How do we establish relationships with lost people or more lost people? I'm going to give you a couple of tips under each of these major headings. Think of these final two talks in this series as the practical implications of many of these passages of Scripture that we've studied together. This is going to be the how-to, the tips on how you can go and do evangelism. So here's the first tip. Pray for opportunities. How do we meet lost people? How do we connect with lost people? We should begin by praying. Praying for opportunities. If you have a prayer journal, if you use a prayer app, make one of your recurring prayer prompts opportunities. More opportunities to connect with unbelievers. And if you do that, if you begin to pray daily for more opportunities to connect with lost people, several things will happen. The first thing that will happen is God will answer that prayer. You know how I know that? Because this is a prayer that is clearly in accordance with His will. 
And so he will indeed answer it. He will provide open doors for you. That's the first thing that will happen if you dare to pray, to pray that prayer. But the second thing that will happen is you will be more aware of those doors opening in front of you. See, if I pray for something every single day, it remains at the forefront of my thinking, the forefront of my attention. And so it's much more likely that I will see those doors opening in front of me. But it's not just that I'll see them. The third thing that will happen as you pray this prayer daily is your heart will begin to change. Your heart will be formed as you pray for opportunities with lost people. See, prayer doesn't change God. Prayer changes us. Prayer changes us by praying every day, God, give me opportunities with lost people, opportunities to show your love, to share your truth. What happens is our hearts are aligned with God's own heart. We begin to desire the very things that he desires. It changes us. So, pray daily for these opportunities. God will hear you and he will answer. You will see the doors opening and you will be more ready to walk through them. Begin with prayer. Pray for these opportunities. Here's a second tip. Frequent the same places. Frequent the same places. This is a very simple but highly effective strategy. And I learned this many years ago from the London City Mission. Many years ago, I spent part of a summer studying in London, and one of the organizations we worked with is the London City Mission, LCM. For over 200 years, LCM has been ministering to the least reached people in this, one of the most dense and diverse cities of the world, and they have an incredibly simple strategy. Here it is. The strategy of LCM is the same person going to the same people regularly to become their friend for Jesus' sake. That's it. The same person going to the same people regularly to become their friend for Jesus' sake. That's something that each and every one of us can do. Frequent the same places. Look, we all have a neighborhood, right? That's an easy place to frequent. Most of us have a, a workplace. That's also an easy place to frequent. Beyond that, go to the same barber or hairdresser every month. Go to the same gym. Go to the same coffee shop and get to know the people there. I try to practice what I'm preaching here. If you've ever scheduled a meeting with me, you'll know that my favorite meeting place is not here at the church. It's actually a little coffee shop in the middle of Seminole called Driftwood Coffee. If you've scheduled a meeting with me, probably we met at Driftwood. Now, why in the world do I do that? I've got a great big office space backstage right here. It's very comfortable. It's very convenient. Why go to a coffee shop? Because I never know who I might run into there. And because over the months and now even the years that I've been going there, I've gotten to know the people who work there. I've gotten to know the other people who come in to get coffee often. So I have good spiritual reasons for doing this. Yeah, it's also just that I like coffee a lot. But you see what I'm doing? I'm frequenting the same places. This past Tuesday, I had back-to-back -back meetings with church folks scheduled at Driftwood Coffee. In between the first and the second meeting, a lady comes over to my table and very politely says to me, out of the blue, lady I've never met, very politely says, 
I overheard your conversation about church. Could you tell me a little more about your church? That would never happen if I was spending all of my time on campus here. Look, this is something you can do too. The same barber, the same gym, the same whatever. Frequent the same places. Get to know the people. Learn their names. I'm a dork. I have a little note on my phone. And anytime I meet someone new, and I think this is going to be someone I'm going to see again, I immediately put their name on my phone. Because I want to remember them. I want to establish that relationship with them. And a huge first step is learning their name. So it helps that I can walk back into Driftwood and call the lady at the counter by name. You can do that too. Frequent the same places. See what the Lord does. Now, that's just the beginning. This is how we can connect, meet lost people, meet more lost people. We must go further than that. How do we express that we care? How do we deepen the relationships that we're establishing? Several tips that I'll offer here. The first one is go to their things. Go to their things. Now, if you grew up in church, if you've been in church for any number of years, this will strike you as counterintuitive. Because we have always heard, invite them to our things. Right? Invite them to our things. And I'm telling you to do the opposite. I think the place to begin is to go to their things. It's very easy for us to drift into this attractional model of evangelism, thinking that if we can just have some great event, even, even as leaders, we're sometimes tempted to think back into these old categories of the attractional model. If we can just program the perfect event, some wonderful event on our campus, then lost people throughout the city will just come here and hang out with us. But you know what usually happens? What usually happens is that churched people from all across the city come and hang out with us. Because think about it for a minute. If a person is an unbeliever, a skeptic, they are already antagonistic toward the faith. They have made up their mind about Jesus and Christianity and the church. Then us offering them some candy or a slip and slide, that's not going to change their mind. Why on earth would it? You follow me? So the first step can't be invite them to our things. We must be willing to go to their things. Now this means, of course, that we have to make that a priority. When we get to know that unbelieving friend at work, he or she invites us to a party, a get-together, a child's concert, a barbecue, whatever it is, we have to be willing to go. It's interesting, if you study Luke's gospel, one of the things you'll notice is that Jesus is always eating with people. Always eating with people. And oftentimes, he's invited. He's invited to their things and he goes. He goes to their dinner parties. He goes to their homes. Sometimes he just invites himself over. Jesus was willing to go to their things. We must follow his lead. So go to their things. Now, the second thing we can do, serve without strings. Serve without strings. Look for opportunities to express generosity and kindness and expect nothing in return. Expect nothing in return. So when the new family moves into your neighborhood, go and meet them and give them a welcome to the neighborhood gift. 
And then every Easter and Christmas after that, give them another little gift just to let them know, hey, we haven't forgotten about you guys. Here's a little something. When your unbelieving friends at work have their first child, give them a parenting survival packet, a couple of good books on marriage and family, and a nice bottle of wine. All right, I'm kidding about the wine. Make it a bourbon. (laughs) Give them something. Express generosity, kindness. What are you doing in that? You're showing them, hey, you know what? I care about you. I care about you. I'm here for you. Something very simple we can do. Now, here's one more, and this one is a big one. Merge your universes. Merge your universes. Let me flesh that out a bit so you'll know what I mean. This idea comes from Sam Chan. Sam Chan is an evangelist in Australia. If you don't know anything about Australia, Australia is one of the places in the world that is very uh, unchristian. I would say probably between 3 and 5% of Australians are actively involved in a Christian church. So in Australia, there are more Buddhists than Baptists. That'll put it in perspective for you. Sam Chan argues that one of the reasons we have so many friends who are not Christians is because we've never introduced them to a community of people who are Christians. And so what we need to do, Chan says, is take this one universe of all of our unbelieving friends that we're talking about, how do we develop these friendships, all these unbelieving friends, and this other universe of our Christian friends, and we need to merge them, merge the universes. Now, don't misunderstand the point. Chan is not arguing that you should invite your one token unbelieving friend to come get lost in the sea of Christians at a Christian concert. That's not the type of merging of universes he's talking about. He's talking about when you've got two or three unbelieving friends at work and they invite you to hang out on the weekend at the local brewery or go see the new Batman movie that releases in a couple of weeks. You say to them, yeah, I'd love to come. Would it be all right if I bring a couple of other friends that you guys haven't met yet? And if they say yes, then you invite a few of your believing friends and you slowly but surely start to merge those universes. Now, why is that so important? How does that help us in the evangelistic task? Plausibility structures. Plausibility structures. Here's what I mean. Each and every one of us has certain factors that help us decide if something is plausible or believable. How do you decide if something is believable? Community is one of the ways. Community is one of the gatekeepers. Community strengthens believability. I'll prove it to you. If I were to tell you that last night I was walking along the beach at Indian Rocks and all of a sudden... A UFO landed right there in the sand, right in front of me. Your first thought would probably be, Dylan needs a vacation. (laughs) Or, Dylan's been drinking that bourbon he just talked about a minute ago. You, You would find my claim utterly unbelievable, right? You wouldn't believe me. But what if? What if I said that to you and then all of a sudden a few other people in the room stood up and said, I saw it too. I was there last night. Well, you might want to listen a little more then. And then what if other people in the room get up and these are people you know, people you trust, and they say, I saw it too. I was there. Well then, 
then you might be curious. You might want to hear a little bit more about what we say we saw. Community strengthens believability. When we merge these universes, we're bringing more believers into that network, more people who can say, I have seen the transformative power of Jesus. I can speak to that. I've seen it in my own life. And so the gospel becomes more plausible as we merge these universes, you see? So how do we care? Deepen relationships with unbelievers, go to their things, serve without strings, generosity, kindness, work on merging our universes. Next week, we're going to continue this, and we're going to talk about chatting, initiating those spiritual conversations, and chaplaining, remaining present, abiding in their lives. But I want to say one thing in closing here. As we care and deepen relationships with unbelievers, we must be aware of the fact that we are trying to do this in a society where relationships are thinning. Friendships are thinning. There was an article in the New York Times about a month ago. It was actually an article that was a republication. They reran the article from 2012 because in their words, in the words of the New York Times, this is a timeless topic. The title of the article is, Why is it hard to make friends over 30? Why is it hard to make friends over 30? Alex Williams, the author of the article, writes this, In your 30s and 40s, plenty of new people enter your life through work, children's play dates, and of course, Facebook. But actual close friends, the kind you make in college, the kind you call in a crisis, those are in shorter supply. No matter how many friends you make, a sense of fatalism can creep in. The period for making BFFs the way you did in your teens or early 20s is pretty much over. It's time to resign yourself to situational friends, KOFs, kind of friends, for now. But often, People realize how much they have neglected to restock their pool of friends only when they encounter a big life event, like a move, say, or a divorce. That thought struck Lisa, an educational fundraising executive in Chicago, just a few months ago when she was planning her 39th birthday. After a move from New York to Evanston, Illinois, she realized that she had 857 Facebook friends 509 Twitter followers, but still, she did not know if she could fill her party's invitation list. After a divorce in his 40s, Robert, a psychotherapist in Bellevue, Washington, realized that his roster of friends had quietly atrophied for years as he focused on career and family. All of a sudden, with your wife out of the picture, you realize you're lonely. Dr. Glover said, now 56. I'd go to salsa lessons. Instead of trying to pick up the women there, I'd introduce myself to the men. Hey, let's go get a drink. I need a friend. You can read the whole article later on in your own time, but the two big takeaways for us, relationships are thinning, especially for those who are over the age of 30. But the second takeaway is this. People tend to realize their need 
for deeper relationships during life's bigger moments. The good moments, but especially the bad ones. Now, if this is true, then if your unbelieving friends, those in your network, if they don't truly have that close community of people, when they hit the big moments in life, and especially the bad ones, when suffering hits, the door will be wide open for you to be the type of friend they need. The listening, loving, caring friend they need. The door is wide open for you. Now look, we're about to pray, but I want to say one last thing. If you're an unbeliever and you just happen to be here today, or you just happened upon this service, this talk online, what a weird day to be here, right? Because you're just kind of listening in to all this, and you're thinking probably, I mean, I'd be thinking if I was in your shoes, what kind of a cult is this? Like, they've been, they've been for the last 30 minutes talking about a strategy, about how they're going to get in my home and invite me into their lives, and like, what do they, what do they want from me? Now, you got it all wrong. Listen, it's not what we want from you. It's what we want for you. It's what we want for you. What we've been talking about is how we are willing to readjust our lives. To change up our priorities. All because we care for you. All because we have this thing called the gospel. We believe it deeply. And we truly believe it will help you. So we are simply saying we care about you this much. We care about you. Maybe you've never had anyone say that to you. And if not, then this is the place for you. If you're looking for a place where you can belong, even if you are not ready to believe, this is the place for you. Now let's pray. Father, we love you and we thank you for this day and for this opportunity to talk about something very important, this mission that you've called us to. And this is a very practical mission. It involves our calendars and our homes and relationships and our time. All of this. So God, as we think now about the people you've placed in our lives, I would venture to say we're all aware of at least one person that as far as we can tell, they're not a believer. So we ask you, God, to use us. We submit to you. We submit our all. We might be afraid. We might not know exactly what to say even where to begin. But we know this. We have the gospel and we have your Holy Spirit within us. And those are the only two things that we need. So give us the courage we lack. We do pray for more and more opportunities. Help us to become present and remain present in the lives 
of skeptical people. People who are angry at Jesus, angry at Christians. We ask you for more opportunities to talk with those folks. To show them that we're here. To listen. To love. To care. No matter what. No matter what.